0: Well, good morning again. It's good to see everybody. You know, obviously, Resurrection Sunday, Easter Sunday, as we gather together, this is a uh, just a wonderful opportunity for us to worship the Lord and to give Him thanks for who He is and for everything He's done for us. And for us, this is a very, you know, I would say this is a very public day. This is a day that, that for us as believers, we... Uh, you know, dress up a little bit, take some family pictures, you know, get together. There's not a whole lot of hidden aspects to what our day-to-day life is like on an Easter Sunday. But the time following the crucifixion of Jesus was a very confusing and fearful time for His original disciples. When you look at what Scripture reveals to us, it, it shows us that the disciples expected Jesus to be recognized as King, And they anticipated reigning with Him as His inner circle. That's what they thought was about to take place. So they saw Him perform miracles. They saw Him heal multitudes of people. But then they also saw Him arrested, and then He was killed. And for fear that the same thing was going to happen to them, keep in mind what the disciples were doing that Resurrection Sunday. They were hiding. So we're gathering together And they were hiding. And in fact, we're told that the disciples were in a room that was locked because they were fearful of potentially being found. And if they were found, they thought they would then be captured and killed. And the portion of Scripture we're going to look at this morning is from John chapter 20. And it takes us to that scene on that resurrection day, the day Jesus Christ rose from the dead. And He appeared to His disciples. And it tells us what He said to them and what He did. And so we're going to take a look at this a a portion at a time. We're going to start off in John chapter 20, starting with verse 19. And I'm going to begin by reading down to verse 23, and then we're going to pick up from time to time this morning, looking at the rest of this passage. But in John chapter 20, starting with verse 19, this is what it says. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word, and thank you for the fact that as we gather together today, we do so honoring the resurrection of your Son, Jesus Christ, Father, we know that every time we gather together like this on the the first day of the week, that's what we're ultimately proclaiming, even in the day we choose to gather together as believers. But we're grateful, Lord, that this is a day that we as your church set aside specifically to focus on the resurrection of your Son, and we're grateful, Lord, to be able to join Christians throughout the world doing the very same thing recognizing what was accomplished on our behalf through your son, Jesus Christ, who rose from the dead. And Father, we're grateful to be able to look at this portion of Scripture that reminds us what it was like to be a disciple in that first century, what it was like to deal with the social pressures and what it was like to deal with the threat of persecution and and all the things that came with it. Lord, we even know, you know, just on that first, that resurrection Sunday, that day that you rose from the grave, you have the disciples locked up, They're fearful that they're going to be found. They're fearful they'll be arrested and executed, as your son was. We know, Lord, that with the exception of one of them, that that's exactly what eventually happened to them over the course of their lives, one at a time. But, Lord, you changed their fear into faith. You changed cowards into brave people who knew you and loved you and were willing to proclaim your gospel. And so as we look at these things today... We pray that you would transform us as well. We pray that you'd help us to have courageous hearts that are just completely filled with your spirit and grateful for your presence with us. Again, Father, we thank you for these things and for these reminders this morning. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we look at this portion of Scripture from John chapter 20, you see some of the things that are referenced here related to what Jesus said and what he did when he was interacting with the disciples in this context. At this point, we see that Jesus had risen from the grave and he was appearing to people in his resurrected body. Now, it's kind of interesting when you look at a portion of Scripture like this, and it shows us some of the things that Jesus did in His resurrected body, because I think one of the things that that we're invited to start thinking about when you look at this portion of Scripture and some of the companion Scriptures that go along with it is that we too one day will have a glorified, resurrected body. Do you think about that much? I think about that. You know, our resurrected body. Scripture reveals to us that one day we're going to have a resurrected, glorified body that's going to resemble the body of Christ. And it's interesting to observe some of the things that Jesus was doing in this portion of Scripture because it's actually, in a a very noticeable way, it's giving us a picture of our future reality. And one of the things that apparently Jesus was able to do was walk through solid walls and appear in front of his friends. Now, if you were in a context and you were certain that the doors were locked in the room that you were in, and all of a sudden someone who wasn't in the room appeared in the room, what do you suppose your response? What do you suppose your response to something like that would be? You know, I think naturally experiencing something like that would freak just about everybody out. I think I think that would be a very natural response, and so you have Jesus doing something very similar to what we see uh, angels at times doing when they interact with people. When angels interact with people, what do they typically say? They tell you to to calm down. And so when Jesus, the Son of God, appears in front of the, the disciples, what does He say? He says, peace be with you. And then He says it again, It says, the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord, and Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. Twice, he says it to them, peace be with you. What he's doing here is he's encouraging them not to be consumed with fear, because up to this point, this is what's happened to them. For the past few days, they've been filled with fear. They've been trying to hide people. And then to make it very, very clear to them who they were seeing, Jesus showed them the scars in his hands and the scars, or the scar on his side. And he makes it clear to them, look, he's not there to capture them. He's not there to harm them like they obviously had feared. He was there to encourage them and build them up through faith in him. Now, I had an interesting conversation the other day with a friend of mine. He's actually a software developer. And uh, I don't know what you think the day-to-day life of a software developer would be like, uh, what what you think they would uh, do during the course of their day or what their struggles would be. But one of the things that he confessed was that, and I've heard him say this multiple times, he, he enjoys certain aspects of his job, but one of the things he dislikes about his job is just how much time he spends isolated and alone. And I don't know if you feel like you have a, a role that, that makes you feel like that. Maybe your job sometimes makes you feel isolated and alone. Maybe other things in your life make you feel isolated and alone. I know that there are certain days when just the nature of my, my own tasks require me to kind of just stay locked up in an office and and I find myself at the end of a day just craving human interaction because of that. But there are times in our lives where I think maybe we'll feel a bit isolated when we'll feel a little bit alone. I think we all wrestle with that. And I think that's something that the disciples to a degree were feeling at this point as well, but coupled with fear. They were feeling like, all right, you know what? We're we're abandoned. We're alone. We had our leader, we had our rabbi, our Messiah with us. We thought he was the Messiah. We thought he was going to establish his kingdom, but then they killed him. And where is he? And they're wrestling with that. They're fearful. They're alone. They're confused. And then you have Jesus showing up, and what does he do? He interrupts that perspective. He returns to them in his resurrected body, and he offers them peace. He gives them his peace. Again, he says it to them multiple times, peace be with you. And here's the thing that's true of our walk with Christ, even though we live many generations from when this scripture actually took place, when we mistakenly believe that in this world we are abandoned, or when we mistakenly believe that in this world we are alone, we will experience anxiety and fear. If that's your perspective, if you think you've been abandoned, if you think you're actually alone, you will experience anxiety and fear. But when we remember the very thing that Jesus was trying to illustrate to the disciples on that day, that he is present with us, we can experience a genuine sense of peace through his presence. And having established his presence with them, Jesus then, the scripture tells us, he breathed on his disciples and the Holy Spirit indwelled them. Then Jesus invited his followers to proclaim forgiveness of sins in his name It's Jesus' role to forgive sin, and these men would be used by Him to proclaim forgiveness through Him throughout the known world. It's a very beautiful thing, and this is what Jesus accomplished in the lives of these disciples on that Resurrection Sunday. And He also demonstrates in this moment that we can find peace through faith in Him. If you look at what the Scripture continues with, when you look at verse 24, it says, Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. By the way, if you, were, if you were Thomas, what do you suppose your perspective would be? He does get a bad rap. I'll mention something about this in just a second. But what would your perspective have been if you were Thomas? And by the way, keep in mind, like this group of guys that he's traveled with for the past three and a half years, do you think they ever messed with each other? I know if I was one of the disciples, I'd be messing with some of the other guys from time to time, right? Don't you ever think do you feel like Thomas? And it says the, the twin. So, okay, so he had a brother. So if you grow up with a brother, what are you used to your your brother doing or, or your friends doing? Messing with you, right? And it says, Hey, we've seen the Lord. And he's like, Come on. Come on. He wasn't with them when he appeared, right? He says, We have seen the Lord, but he said to them, Look. Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the the mark of the nails and then place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Now the scripture goes on to say this. It says, eight days later, Christ's disciples, his disciples were inside again and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. So you see him doing this again because even though they've seen it once... Still kind of freaky, right? I have to believe that the Lord enjoyed doing this, by the way. (laughs) Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands. And put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. And Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. And Jesus said to him, have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. not that a beautiful thing? I have to tell you, one of my favorite things as a dad is just evening conversations that I get to have with my children. Usually I'm the last person that goes to sleep in our household, although I do have some competition for that. Uh, but a lot of times in our household, what ends up happening is I'll be sitting in the family room usually reading or doing something like that in the evening, and and whoever's up will find their way into the family room, and we'll talk. And I always enjoy this, and the cast of characters changes uh, during the years, you know, whoever feels like being a late bird at that particular season, but typically this is what will happen. We will recap our day for each other, and so whichever child will come into the room and sit down and talk we will kind of recap what they did that day and what sort of things they experienced and what they saw, and they'll tell their story, and then they'll usually ask, hey, Dad, what, how was your day? What, what did you do? And then I'll recap my day, and it, it kind of becomes a nightly routine, and I very much enjoy that. But I have to tell you something that, that has not happened, typically, in moments like that. As my children are recapping their day, I don't typically look at them and say, did that really happen? Like, you really go to school and in, enjoy food this evening with your friends? Is that, I don't know. Did that really, ha- and you know, when they look at me, they're not like, are you sure you were prepping sermons today, Dad? Like, like I've heard your sermons. I'm pretty sure you don't prep, right? Like, it's like, like are, are, you, are you sure? Yeah, like, we don't, we don't hear each other's story and then just find ourselves completely questioning each other's testimonies we hear each other's stories and say oh nice and then we invite the other person to share their story and there's definitely a level of trust and belief in that context and and i bring that up because i don't know what was going through thomas's head i truly don't when, when you look at this portion of scripture and and you see what he was wrestling with but when the other t- disciples tell him that they've that they've seen jesus he refused to believe them he wouldn't believe them this was something that he just he just couldn't wrestle with now Personally, I think Thomas gets a bad rap because of this account. And many people for many years have referred to him as what? Doubting Thomas, right? Now, could you imagine? Do you know what this guy did with his life? So he spends three and a half years following Jesus and serving people in Jesus' name during the course of Christ's earthly ministry. One time gets told something that just seems like amazingly hard to believe. It's like, hey, you know your friend that was just brutally executed? Yeah, he's back. <laughs> That's not a common thing to just wrap your mind around, okay? And if the others weren't present in the room when Jesus showed up, I'm pretty sure that we'd also have a doubting Peter and a doubting Matthew, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, right? But we call him doubting Thomas. You know what this guy did with his life? Historians believe that In the years following this account, he traveled to what is modern-day India. He faithfully proclaimed the gospel there until he was executed because he wouldn't stop talking about Jesus Christ. But it seems like the primary thing people remember about him is that he was a doubter. And so you wonder, why is something like that included in Scripture? Why does the Lord allow us to see something like that? I actually wonder if part of the reason that the Lord allowed this to happen and allows this to be recorded in Scripture is because, if we're honest, I think we all wrestle with some level of doubt from time to time. And you actually get to look at Thomas and see that one of the disciples who actually saw the risen Jesus with his eyes, prior to seeing the risen Jesus with his eyes, was legitimately wrestling with doubt. And if I, as I read this passage, I can't help but wonder if Thomas... When he was thinking about all these things, even before he sees the risen Jesus, as he's wrestling with all of this, was still feeling a bit emotionally crushed, because in his mind, all the expectations he had were dashed in the past few days. And I wonder if at this point he was trying to maybe protect his heart from being hurt again and from being disappointed again. And I wonder if in, you know just and maybe you do this too, I think I do this to a certain degree as well where sometimes to protect ourselves from feeling pain, we get a bit defensive. Do you ever do that? To protect your heart from experiencing additional pain, maybe you get a little defensive. And I wonder if he decided that the, the, the message the disciples were sharing with him was just too good to be true. It was exactly what he wanted to hear, but I think it felt maybe a little too good to be true and maybe emotionally dangerous to allow his heart to accept it. So he said, you know, if I'm going to let my heart go in that direction... I want to see some proof. I want proof. I don't just want words from you guys. I want some proof. If I'm going to let my heart go in that direction, if I'm going to buy into this, if I'm going to believe this, I want to see some proof. And so eight days later, Jesus provides the proof. The scripture tells us that he appeared to the disciples again, and this time Thomas was present. And you have Jesus who obviously heard. So you see his his all-knowing omnipresence. Jesus shows Thomas his scars and, and invited him to stop doubting and believe. Obviously, he'd heard what Thomas had said, even though Thomas, when he said it, didn't realize Jesus could hear what he was saying. And you have Jesus revealing these things to Thomas. Now, a while back, I was actually watching something that, that recounted an accident that had happened to somebody. It was actually a, like a heavy storage container. It hit the person in the back of the head. The person survived and, and ultimately recovered. But they were talking about how after this thing hit this person in the back of the head they were going to need, I can't remember how many staples to actually sew that up. And I remember when I saw that, I thought to myself, all right, that's going to leave a bad scar. That many staples is going to leave a bad scar. And, uh, you know, when I look at my body, I could see especially like all around my right hand but other places on my body, I have a whole series of scars on my body. Do you have some scars on your body? You don't really make it through life without a few. And some of us, you know, I mean, as time goes on, what happens? You develop more and more. Some of the scars on my hand have very funny stories. And then some are immature and some are deviant, you know, as I, as I just kind of look at some of the things that needed to be stitched up on myself. But here's the thing. Even though every one of those things has a story that goes with it, I don't believe these scars are going to be present on my resurrected body. I think my resurrected body is going to be without these scars. But then here you have Jesus presenting himself before the disciples, and he's in his glorified, resurrected body, and he still has his scars. You ever wonder why that's the case? Why did Jesus have scars, the scars of the crucifixion still upon his glorified, resurrected body? I believe those scars serve as an intentional and visible and eternal reminder on the body of Christ that serve as a testimony to the fact that He was wounded so we could be healed. Something that even in eternity we'll be able to look upon Him and realize He bore our sin in His body so that we could live sinlessly forever. And in fact, when you look at the book of Revelation, it even describes Jesus as the Lamb of God. But it tells us something about the Lamb of God in Revelation 5, verse 6. It says, And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. So what do you see? See, even in the resurrected body of Jesus Christ, the scars of the crucifixion. Then we come back to Thomas here. And Thomas is seeing these things, the very things he said, I'm not going to believe unless I actually see that. And in fact, he was more graphic. He's saying, listen, they pierced his body all up unless I stick my fingers or my whole hand into some of those gaping openings. If I don't do that, if I don't get the opportunity, and by the way, understand he had no desire to actually do that. That's the type of thing that you say to other people when you're saying, this is how far things will have to go for me to believe. I'm literally going to have to stick my hand in his wounded side that was pierced with a sword. And i have to stick my finger through the, where they put those nails. And uh, I think in his mind, he thinks he's exaggerating and being a bit gross. And then you look at Christ, and what does Christ do? And he says, hey, Thomas, you really want to do it? Here it is. I think Thomas, as he's looking upon this, he's realizing No, I I really don't want to do that. But he accepted Christ's invitation to believe in him and to trust in him as he's seeing these things. And what does he testify to the Lord? What does he say in that moment? He looks upon Jesus in his glorified state, yet still having the, the scars of the crucifixion, and he says, My Lord and my God. It was in that moment where where Thomas recognizes who indeed Jesus is. God come in the flesh. His Lord, his God. By the way, this is the type of thing that Jesus wants us all to eventually experience. This is a spot that he wants you to get to as well, and he wants all of us to get to, where we would look upon him and say, my Lord and my God. Where we would look upon him and say, you know what, I don't just know you as a di- from a distance. It's interesting, you could, you could find out a lot about a person's faith if you just ask them, to you, who is Jesus? Or just, you could even say it this way, who is Jesus? And some people might say he's a prophet, some people might even say, they might even go so far as to say the Son of God. But it's also interesting when people couple that when they say, my Lord and my God in a very personal way, not just at a distance, not just theoretical or theological. My Lord and my God. And that's what Thomas was saying in this moment, my Lord and my God. And then Jesus reminds Thomas, or he tells Thomas and reminds us, you know, Thomas, you had an advantage here to one degree. You got to see me with your natural eyes, but blessed are those who don't get to see me with their natural eyes and they still believe. That's us. Now, there'll be a day when we'll see him with our eyes, but before our eyes see, our heart has the faith. And the Lord prompts that within us through the power of his spirit, and we're blessed if we'll proclaim, my Lord and my God. And That's what he invites us to do. And it's interesting, as the Apostle John is writing these things down, he's thinking about all the amazing things that he's seen Jesus do, and he's trying to illustrate that we indeed will find life in the name of Jesus Christ. When you get to John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31, John wraps up this part by saying this. He says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in His name. John says, This is why... This is why I wrote this down. This is why I accepted the the call and the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to do this, so that you would have life, so that you would believe in Jesus Christ and that you would have life in his name. And he's writing these things down with lots of intention as the Holy Spirit is guiding his pen and, and inspiring within him what to actually include. Do you like reading? Do you like reading the things that other people have written? Anyone like to read biographies? I love reading biographies. Most biographies that I like to read, I actually prefer reading biographies written by somebody else, not by the subject. A lot of autobiographies I've discovered can be a bit challenging to read. And the reason I think that a lot of them are challenging to read is because when someone is writing an autobiography, a lot of times they want to give you every last detail that you don't care about. I so was actually reading a presidential autobiography a while back, and I got into it, and, the, and the, the autobiography was talking about, you know, this former president was talking about where he grew up, and I was like, all right, that part's sort of interesting, and then he started talking about the topography of the land in this area down by the river. And... Uh, Like the geography of his hometown and its placement on the map, the river that runs near it, et cetera, et cetera. And I realized after a while, this is boring me to tears. I wanted to hear about the man, not the maps. The nice thing about somebody else writing your story is what do they do? They tend to get to the point, they tend to get to the highlights. Now, if you were in the Apostle John's shoes and you were tasked, With writing down a brief account of the earthly ministry of Jesus, what would you include? (laughs) Because in that case, wouldn't you think you would want like every last thing? You really would want every last thing, right? You know, and, and what would you omit? And what would you wrestle with? Like, should I have that in there? Should I not have that in there? John here says that there were many other miraculous acts that Jesus did. In front of him and in front of the other disciples, but John didn't write them down in this book. And I would love to know more about these things, but they're not included. But what's John trying to do? The point he's trying to make is the Holy Spirit guided his pen was not to write down you know, excessive details about topography or current fashion or other unnecessary information. He was inspired to share what needed to be shared in order for the, for the reader of this gospel to come to a place where they personally trusted in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and that through faith in Jesus, they would receive life in His name. It's like what Scripture tells us in Acts chapter 4, verses 11 and 12. It says, This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men, by which we must be saved. There's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. only the name of Jesus Christ. Isn't it a beautiful thing to realize what Jesus is offering us here. He's offering us life. And I think it's, it's obvious that even though He's offering that, many people in this world struggle to really know what He's offering us. because He's not offering us life like we're used to. I think many people look at life and they think, you know what, this is what a good life would be. And all they mean is that they're trying to settle for very predictable and comfortable routines. And that's not what Jesus is offering us. By the way, do you ever look at what the average American does during the course of their life? Do you ever see a study of it? I came across a study some time ago. Listen to what the average American does over the course of their life. In the average American lifetime, the average American spends three years in business meetings. That sounds delightful, doesn't it? Three years of your life in business meetings? No thanks. 13 years watching TV. 13 years of your life watching TV? I I, I could be really judgmental, and then during football season, I I rarely miss a game, and then I'm like, ooh, uh, might be 14, right? How about this? This stat, I think, needs to be bumped up, because this stat isn't extremely recent, but when this study was put together, this stat says they spend $89,000 over the course of their life on food. I've seen the price of eggs, it's higher. It's higher now. They consume during the course of their life 109,000 pounds of food. I will do that today. <laughs> the average American makes 1,811 trips to McDonald's over the course of their life. I don't know if that's. That's your go-to place. We have lots of options here locally, so maybe it's something else for you. The average American spends nearly $7,000 in vending machines. What do you think of that? How about this? They tend to eat, this one blew my mind a little bit. It's probably true, but over the course of a lifetime, this is a huge number. The average American over the course of their lifetime eats 35,138 cookies Some of you are like, yeah, today, right? (laughs) And 1,483 pounds of candy. Over the course of the average American lifetime, you will catch 304 colds. You will be, well, hopefully not, hopefully not. I'm not pronouncing this as a prescription, but if you're average, you might be involved in six motor vehicle accidents. Uh, if you're a man, you might be hospitalized eight times. That's the average. Good news, ladies. If you're a woman, it'll be 12. That's the average. Why is that? You guys always live longer than us. Maybe because you actually go to the hospital. That's why number nine for us was the time we're like, I'm fine. No, you should have gone number, like, your ninth time. Um, in the average American lifetime we will spend 24 years sleeping 24 years sleeping well here's the thing there is much more to the kind of life that jesus is offering to us than that and when you look at that list that list includes many of the things that most people would say yeah that's the good stuff in life it's a good stuff right go to my favorite restaurants get some sleep watch some tv Eat some cookies, wreck my car. No, not that part, not that part. But you look at that and you, and, and you, you see when Jesus, like you have, you have the Apostle John as he's talking about what Jesus has done here. He says, You know, belie- he says, But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. There is much more to life than what this world can offer us. And Jesus wants to allow us to experience that through him, through his name. Because what has he done? You know, we celebrate on this Resurrection Sunday the fact that he's taken us from death and condemnation to eternal life and restoration. That's what Christ has done for us. He's taken us from slavery to freedom. He's taken us from despair to hope. Or in the case of the disciples, you can see he took them from cowardice to bravery. And just as sin and Satan and death were unable to defeat Jesus Christ, his name defeats their power in our lives. As we trust in him as our saviors, we trust in him as our Lord. His power defeats sin, Satan, and death in our lives. And here's the thing, let me just say this as we finish up this morning. So we celebrate his resurrection today. We do so with grateful hearts, knowing that Christ offers us peace in his presence. And new life through faith in him. And this is what I want us to think about today. I just want to encourage us, don't minimize or forget what Jesus has accomplished on our behalf. Don't hold any part of your life back from him. Receive the gift of salvation that he's offering you and experience the kind of life that he offers because it can't be obtained any other way. And the beautiful thing is that even as we're gathered here today, celebrating the resurrection of Christ, we're celebrating ultimately who he is and what he's done on our behalf. He didn't do this for his benefit. He didn't endure the pain and the scorn and the shame and and death and and, uh, the agony and everything that went along with that for his benefit. He did it for our benefit so that you and I will have the privilege to live forever in his presence. We sang it before, but it's something that, that should ring in our heart every day. Death truly is defeated. It's defeated. Our time here on this earth right now, it's limited. We're here for just a brief moment. But Christ is offering us himself, and he's saying, through faith in me, you'll live forever. You really will live. And it's going to be a life that's beyond what this world can offer you. This world can offer you nice snacks, maybe a day of rest, some laughs with your friends. And those things are beautiful and wonderful, but they're not eternal. And Christ looks at us and he says, I'm going to give you that and I'm going to give you everything beyond it. And if we trust in Him, we have the opportunity to experience true life in His presence for all eternity. Death truly is a defeated foe. I recognize that we live in a world that is absolutely freaked out and consumed with the fear of death. Is it not? Every single day you see elements of that or demonstrations of that. Every single day, people that live their day-to-day life consumed with the fear of death, but for the follower of Christ, that doesn't need to be our fear. Again, let me just finish by referencing the disciples. Where were they? That resurrection Sunday, where were they? Locked up because they were afraid that people were going to kill them. And then what happened? Christ strengthened them. The Spirit of God indwelled them, and they went to the furthest reaches of this world, proclaiming the message of the gospel, telling people that they could have life in the name of Jesus Christ, And they were executed because they did it. And they died without fear. In the sense that they knew what was happening next. And I look at that and I think, you know what? Our time on earth, it's going to be really, really brief. I hope it's good. But there's one thing that the Lord wants you and me to take from it. And that's a relationship with Him. And so in the midst of all the wonderful things that I hope that you're blessed with today, I I, I truly hope today is just a wonderful, blessed, encouraging, fun day. I I look forward to this day every year, time with family, time with our church family, enjoyable food around the table, but nothing compares to the life that we have in Jesus Christ. And again, as the Apostle John said, these things have been written down, not so we would just think about it for a morning, but so that we would have life in the name of of Jesus Christ. And that's his offer to each of us today. Trust in Jesus Christ. Receive that gift of life and pursue the rest of your days on this planet without fear because that means if you believe in Jesus Christ, his life becomes your life. Sin, Satan, and death are defeated foes and his victory becomes your victory and you get to walk in that victory for the rest of your days. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for the privilege to be able to look at your Word this morning and to think about the things that you reveal to us in it. We're just so grateful, Lord, that on this day, this Resurrection Sunday, that we could set time aside and rejoice in in what you've accomplished through the work of your Son, Jesus Christ. Father, we're just so grateful that we get to experience these things and understand these things. We're so grateful that even though we weren't present in the room, as, as your son was explaining some of these details to Thomas, that we get to be counted among those who haven't seen the things that he got to see with his own eyes, but it's like we have because we see with the eyes of faith. You tell us in your word that as we trust in your son, we receive the, the, the eyes and the mind of Christ. Christ. So we want to see our lives and we want to see our time in this world from that perspective. And we're grateful for the fact that you allow us to do so. Lord, I don't know where the hearts of each of us gathered today happen to be, but I pray that if there be anyone among us who as of yet have not, has not experienced the joy of new life through faith in your Son, Jesus Christ, I pray that today would be the day of their salvation, that whatever they've been trusting in up to this point, they'd lay it aside Surrender it at Your feet. Trust in Your Son, Jesus Christ, and receive the gift of salvation that He so joyfully supplied. And I pray, Lord, that as we approach however many days You give to us on this planet, we pray that we would be men and women who proclaim the truth of Your gospel without fear. That we would not spend our days fearing what man can do to us, but that we would spend our days rejoicing over the fact that we know that through your Son, every single thing is ultimately going to work out. It's going to work out for your glory and for our good, and that you have good in store for us. Lord, that became the joy that you used to sustain your disciples during the course of their earthly lives, and we know that that's a joy that you will use to sustain us as well. So thank you for doing that. And again, thank you for your presence with us. We know, Lord, that That even though we don't see you with our natural eyes, we see your work all around us. And we know you are present right here in this room with us. We're grateful for that. We're grateful that as you promised, you are always with us. And so we rejoice in just having the privilege to come together this morning and think about these things. And to give you the praise. We love you, Lord. And Again, Father, we praise you for the resurrection of your son, Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.